We are, uh, so actually that brings up a good point. So I was, uh, I was supposed to get this uh, class tied up in six weeks. I feel like that's not going to happen. Because uh, uh, somebody's a windbag. Um, so we're on chapter 11. My guess is um, we, we might be able to get it done with one extra week. Uh, the truth is uh, we, I would have planned on two. I would plan on two extra weeks. Uh, and then jump ship if you have to. We're doing the audio recordings. So you can always catch up uh, at your leisure, as opposed to having to sit here with me. I give you August. I think that's understandable. <laughs> um, let, 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 maybe let me remind you of our trajectory, and I'll try to keep that to a bare minimum. But here's here's kind of where we've come from. We kind of did our introduction at Revelation, and there's some things that we said we needed to keep in mind. Is that this was a real letter by a real pastor writing to a real set of churches. Okay, so it's dangerous if we're going to read through this and we feel like it primarily applies to us. We've done a disservice to this group of churches who is receiving this. If we have to assume that Pastor John is a good pastor, that he's writing to a group of churches, something that actually means something to them. And so as we're reading through, we have to try to keep that in mind. Okay, we have to read through the eyes of it can mean something both for the first century Christian and us. But if it's something where we're like, this definitely means something to me, but would be insulting or mean nothing to a first century Christian, we probably should be careful as to our interpretation, right? We can't take it from their hands. We can, we can just drop in on their conversation that Pastor John is having with them. Um, we said the type of literature that it is, it's, it's, uh, it's a letter. It's definitely a letter between John and these churches. Um, it is apocalyptic literature, which means there's lots of different pictures going on, a lot of symbolic things, and a lot that's tied back to our Old Testament. One of the things that, I, that I've have found very valuable going through our Revelation study was the Old Testament starts to kind of come to life to me a little bit. There's a lot of sections, uh, especially the prophets in the Old Testament, parts of Ezekiel, parts of Isaiah, parts of Daniel, where I'm like, I really have no idea what's happening here. Um, but as we start to see some of how John is using those parts of the Old Testament, it starts to bring Revelation to life, but it also starts to bring those scriptures to life too. And it's very cool to see God kind of work same way over and over again. He's consistent. I like that. Um, and he looks at the world kind of the same way, and he can act. He acts in a way that we otherwise can anticipate. Um, but we do, we do see a lot of symbolic things, and we're going to notice that today. Like in the chapter eleven, we're going to start. There's this um, there's this picture of two witnesses, and I don't, I just don't think they're two witnesses. I don't think there's two literal people. But I think there's enough from the Old Testament that will help us to understand that, so that we're not being. Um, I want to be natural readings of the scripture. Um, and April and I were kind of talking about this before class started, like one of the most dangerous things is to start with Scripture and say, I know what I want it to say, so I'm going to make it say it. No, let's let, let's let God speak. Let's let figure out what God is saying, and we want to jump on board with that. Um, but because he has spoken in similar ways, we have an Old Testament, we should kind of see how he's speaking and assume that he's kind of speaking in similar ways so that we can understand Revelation a little bit better. So it's not kind of this spooky book, but it's, uh, it's a message of hope, but also a clear picture of how God looks and sees the world and some of the things that are going on underneath it. Okay? Um, so we came from... <clears throat> Uh, the introduction of kind of the commission, Jesus says, John, here's what I want you to do. I want you to write this stuff down. I want you to tell it to the people. Both my people and those that aren't my people, they need to know this. They need to see it the way I see it. Um, in chapters 2 and 3, he's, Jesus is addressing these churches, these seven churches of Asia Minor. We said it's probably symbolic. Seven is kind of a number of completion. So this is probably a message for all churches. But Jesus does know these churches specifically. He's talking about things that matter to them and that address their particular circumstances. Um, and then we kind of move on and we get this, we 
move from the earthly realm to kind of a heavenly picture of chapter 4 and 5, and we're sitting at the throne of God. And we get to see kind of all these pictures of people worshiping God and how God is, under, is looking at these circumstances. And there's some comfort in that to these persecuted churches from chapters 2 and 3 that say God is in control. And one of the things, you guys remember, there were certain things that were always happening around the throne. Anybody remember what they are? Worship. Yeah, there's, yeah, the worship is constantly surrounding the throne of God. There's 24 elders, probably representative guys, because 12 is a symbolic number. We've got 12 disciples, we've got 12 tribes of, of Israel. Okay, probably a symbolic number. Um, you've got those four creatures, okay, probably symbolic. Again, you, you have like uh, the, the eagle, which is, rules over the air animals. You have the ox, the domesticated animals. Again, again, symbolic creatures, but like everything worships at the throne of God. And remember, we said the sea was where chaos comes from, uncertainty comes from. Back in Daniel, it said there's these beasts that come out of the sea. And Daniel actually interprets those for us. It says, like, these are rulers, so we know that they're not really beasts. But he says danger kind of comes from the sea. And we'll see that again with some beasts that we're going to run into. Um, But at the throne of God, the sea is calm as glass. Because at at the foot of the throne of God, even evil and chaos has no motion there. It's completely under his control. So we get this sense of, of God is sovereign. What he wants to accomplish will be accomplished. Um, and then we also, he, there's these things that are constantly happening around that we get uh, rumblings of thunder and peals of, of lightning and things like that. And we're going to keep coming back to that. Every time there's a, a judgment, we're like, boy, this is scary. Or I can't, the, the, what's going to happen with the world? And constantly those things come back up and say, I take you back to the throne. This is all under God's control. God will do as he pleases. I need you to remind you that, um, but recognize what I'm doing. And then we had the judgments. We got into the seal judgments where there's this, that scroll that's there and the seal is being opened and we see these, the four horsemen. We said those, again, are, uh, aren't likely four literal horsemen. Okay? They're four, so it's a representative. It's completion, um, and it's a judgment upon the earth. And from that, we see from these things that are constantly happening over time, it's probably not an event because, the, if you remember, the horsemen are bringing basically war and its consequences. War and its consequences have always been part of the human experience. And it's always a way in which God is judging the world but calling it to repentance. And we saw the same thing in the trumpets, right? The truths of the trumpets, which is God looking down at a world that disobeys him and God doing things to get the attention of the world and saying, I want you to come back to me. And we saw that a lot in our Old Testament readings. And we said, yeah. That's constantly been a thing. So we don't need to look. We're not listening for trumpets. We're not looking for horses riding in the sky. What we're saying is that John is revealing true things about how God sees the world, how the world works, and things that we need to know so that when we see people suffering or we see persecution that's happening or we see even even some of the natural things that we go on and we say the hand of God calls people to repentance and he'll do it in ways that make sure that gets people attention. And so what are we concerned about? We're concerned about persevering through those things even, even when the Christian church is being persecuted and we're part of God calling all of creation back to him. That's one of the coolest parts of this particular story is, uh, and again, this will show up in a little bit of what we're talking today, is that like the Christians play a part in God setting things right. When he creates something and that thing isn't what he designed it to be and it's been, it's been sullied, it's not quite what he wanted, he sends Jesus and Jesus starts that process of making everything right and Christians get to be a part of that. And we look at a world that God calls to repentance and we do the same thing out of, out of the same love and concern that God has for those people. Uh, so we got, the, we got through the seals and then we went through the trumpets and we got through um, chapter 10. Uh, we got all the way through a sixth trumpet and then we have kind of a break. Um, this is a similar interlude we said through all our judgments through the seals the trumpets and the bowls there's like a break between the sixth and seventh that kind of helps us rethink about why are these things happening what are we supposed to be understanding about this circumstance Um, so we were in chapter we got through 10 with the seal alright let's let's start in chapter 11 Um, 
Chapter 11. Then I was given, <clears throat> the, the eye is John, it says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood, and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the people and tribes and languages and nations, four, will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe was passed, and behold, the third woe is soon to come, and then the seventh trumpet will follow. <clears throat> so holy cast, there's a lot going on in there. Uh, frankly, of, of the stuff that we've run into so far, this one's pretty difficult like the images are interesting to parse. Okay, so let's start kind of walking through them a little bit. Uh, the first was that I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. So we, we talked about this a little bit last week, but I'll kind of reiterate it just for, um, uh, to reorient with where we're at. Um, this, I don't, there's nothing that would make this a physical temple. Okay, if we look back, the last time we saw God give instructions to measure a temple was in Ezekiel, and that wasn't a temple either. Okay? When you measure something, it demonstrates ownership and protection. Okay? I measure it because it belongs to me. I have the right to measure it. And the example we talked about was there's a story in the Old Testament where uh, King David um, has a census done over all his armies and counts them in. And God was very upset about this and t- killed 10,000 of them because they didn't belong to David. They're not his to measure. They're not David's to say, these are my men and I will protect. They belong to the Lord. And so that was the thing, is they weren't David's ownership. God is measuring here a temple, and he says, the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. So if it's not a literal temple, and this is where some of our end time stuff hinges on this, um, is because if, if this becomes a literal temple, we start saying things like, well, for Jesus to return, we need to rebuild a literal temple. But if that isn't where Ezekiel's coming from, and at the time that this was written, which we, again, we, I would say it's probably around 80, 90 to 95, the temple's been gone for 20 years, um, the temple that was in Jerusalem. So if it's not a literal temple, then what is it? Well, we talked about this uh, the first week, but how is the temple redefined um, in light of who Jesus is and what he's done. Yeah, the temple's where, where God resides. Yeah. It's originally his home, and it's, it's, a, it's a place between you know, heaven and earth, and, and the Holy Spirit exists within us, so our body is that temple. Exactly right. So the, the temple traditionally is where heaven and earth intersect. It's where God comes to reside among <laughs> his people. That's, that was its purpose. Okay? Jesus comes and says, one greater than the temple has come. That's Christ. Okay? After Jesus dies on the cross and ascends into heaven, it's the Holy Spirit that's provided and he lives within Christians, right? He lives within God's people. And so we are where heaven and earth intersect. 
the very Holy Spirit of God lives within God's people. We are the temple. And, and that's not just like a, we're pulling some things together. That's Paul's definition. You are the temple of God. Okay, so do I think we need to rebuild a temple? No, that doesn't make any sense to me. If Jesus says he's greater than the temple, why are we rebuilding something, right? It doesn't make any sense. And in light of how we understand Ezekiel, what do I think he's measuring? He's measuring what he owns, his people, God's people, which is the same definition. Remember when we were sealing the 144,000? Again, it's demarcating who belongs to me. You will know who, there will be marked out. Those who belong to me, who have the Holy Spirit, will be looked at in this way. Those people who I'm not measuring... They don't belong. I don't measure things that don't belong to me. Those are the people that aren't the temple. That makes sense? Okay. That, that's, how he's, that's how he's using this. That's how he's kind of laying all this stuff out. And so John is measuring those things. Why is that important for the churches of Asia Minor? Well, again, it shows that God's saying, I know who you are. I know who you are. I know what you're going through because what did we just read? If these two witnesses have anything to do with the Christian community, he's like, yeah, they're going to trample you. You're going to bring my word and they're going to trample all over you and they'll treat you very poorly and you're going to die. And they're going to leave your bodies shamefully in the street and won't bury you. I'm not sure that's literal, but like you get the point. All right. So is it assuring to say God measures his people? Now, we said it's a protection. It's just not a physical protection. There's nothing in the book of Revelation that would give the impression that we are physically protected. Um, again, recalling, I think a lot of what we're looking at after, uh, if you remember the fifth seal, you have these, the martyrs underneath the altar and they say, God, when will you redeem our blood? And he said, not till more of you have died. Um, the, it, back in the churches of Asia Minor, we had said uh, their friend Antipas had died. He had been killed for what he believed, for, for preaching true things about Jesus. And God goes, I know. I know. Physical protection isn't the promise. As a matter of fact, as people who follow Jesus, if Jesus is our example and Jesus died, we certainly shouldn't anticipate anything less. I'm not saying that God is calling you to that, but what I'm saying is it's, it's certainly not off the table, and we shouldn't have the impression that following Jesus doesn't mean following in every one of his footsteps, right? So it, we're not promising a physical protection here, but there is a physical protection where we are confident that God says, I know what you're going through, and yes, I've measured my people, I know who you are, and you're at least protected in that way. All right. Um, it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Um, we've run into these numbers before. There's like three or four of them that are equivalent. Let's, we said uh, 42 months is how many years? Yeah. It's three and a half, okay? Which is the same as times, or time, times, and half a time. Three and a half, right? 1,260 days is how many months? Do it. Do it in your head. Let the wheel spin around. Get the abacus out. 42, 42, okay, same. It's all the same time frame, okay? Um, this does go back, there's, um, the, the same measurement is given back in Daniel 7, um, and we should really think of it as, as basically a specific time. It's not a, compl- it's not a forever amount of time, okay? It's a demarcated amount of time of which all these things are kind of um, happening in tandem. Um, I'll give this away to you. What I think this is, is this is defining the time between uh, basically when Jesus leaves the earth and when he comes back. Okay? It's a specific amount of time that isn't meant to give you a literal count. Okay? It's going to say, this is the time frame, and these are what's going to happen between when Jesus leaves and when Jesus comes back. Okay? So, so that's going to be the, everything that happens in the time times half a time, 1,260 days, three and a half months, all talking about basically the same time frame. Okay. I will grant my authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. What do we say sackcloth? Represents. Anybody remember? Morning, isn't it? Morning. Morning, and there's generally a call. There's there's something else associated with it in the Old Testament. Fasting. Uh, it could be, could be. 
uh, calls for repentance. Okay, those are the two things that, yeah, like if you're in sackcloth, you're generally mourning. A lot of times from the prophet's perspective, they're mourning for, their, for the nation, like what the nation has come to, but they're also doing that as a call to repentance. Okay, and we saw that in a lot of the scripture that we looked at last week in, uh, what was it, Amos, uh, and that kind of stuff. There's a lot of calling, of mourning for what's going on and calling people back to God. Now when it says, uh, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, actually, let's, let's deal with those. Let's go to Zechariah 4. Uh, verse 11 and 14. I like this part of Zechariah. Remember, Zechariah is the one that also, and I didn't, I didn't get around to this, so I'll have to rec- uh, fix that. But Zechariah contains a lot, um, a lot of the images that we find the most confusing. There's, there's horses. There's four horse, horsemen riding in Zechariah. Okay? And uh, in Zechariah 4, we're going to get a picture of these olive trees and lampstands. Uh, associated with them. And what verses you say in the whole chapter? Uh, yeah, well, oh, yeah, we'll read the whole, it's not very long. Um, it's right towards the end of the Old Testament. So, all right, here we go, Zechariah chapter 4. And the angel who talked with me, and he's talking with Zechariah, came again and woke me, like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold and a bowl on top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and one on the, the, and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. So Zerubbabel is the king. I'm thinking he's like a, he's a descendant of David. Um, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? We said mountains are probably what? Yeah, kingdoms. Yeah, kingdoms, Uh, generally. Uh, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They're rebuilding the temple. Okay? These seven are the eyes of the Lord. We've seen that, right? Okay, we said seven representative of the Holy Spirit um, as the eyes, what, what sees out into the world, which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, again, interaction number two, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said, which means he didn't answer the first time. <laughs> the angel just ignored his question the first time around. And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Okay, so this is where the reference is coming from. Okay, it's coming back to this. Now, who are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth? General interpretation would be that this would represent uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua, who was the priest. Okay, so you have king and priest. What do we know about kings and priests? What was that? (laughs) Traditionally not. But how did, how were God's people described in Revelation and, and actually in, as a promise from uh, what would have been Exodus? Kingdom of priests. Kingdom of priests. Kingdom of priests. Priest. Okay? Now, that's why I think our two witnesses aren't two witnesses. Okay? If he's referring back, he's, there's a couple things that are probably in play here. The first one is, is if he's referring back to these things and God's people are described as kingdom of priests and he's saying, kingdom of priests, who do I think these witnesses are? I think they're God's people. I think, that, I think that's where the reference is coming from. Why did he use two? Well, one, because I think that's 
takes us back to the Zechariah reference. But also, there's something about two witnesses from an Old Testament perspective. What is it? Well, the truth. Yes. Go ahead, Dan. You know, if there's two witnesses that agree on something, it's, it's a fact. Yeah. Yeah. And th- uh, we also see this... Um, uh, was it Matthew 18, where he's like, where two or more gathered in my name, there I will be. That's not a, Jesus can't come in if you're by yourself. It's a, where two people on earth are doing things like, I will be there with you in those things. Okay? Because it takes two witnesses to affirm a truth. If you're going to make an accusation, you have to have two witnesses to it. I was in, uh, reference Matthew 17, with the witnesses that Jesus had. What do you mean? The, the two prophets and the priests that were at the transfiguration. That's Why is that a reference to that? That's what oh. I was so the, I'm glad you asked that. Or was it? Well, so yeah, actually, that's a. Let's. I think the rest of this will actually bear that out. Watch this. So it is given over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for forty-two months, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses. Here we go. These are the two olive trees, two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, as I read these descriptions, tell me who they sound like. Uh, if any woman harm them, fire pours from their mouths and consumes their foes. Old Testament story where fire comes down and consumes foes. Elijah. 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 Um, let's see. They have the power to shut the skies so no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. Elijah. Elijah. Okay. Um, the waters to turn them into blood. Moses. Moses. And to strike the earth with every kind of plague. Moses. As often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes, languages, and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Okay. What's that? Wouldn't that last part be Jesus? Because he's in the ground for three and a half days. I, I think there's, there, you're supposed to see a parallel here between the experience of God's people. And again, like the same concept of if we're following Jesus, we should expect um, similar things to occur. Um, but I, it's not Jesus, because he, like, he marks out here that the two witnesses are distinct from him, um, but makes reference to that's where their Lord was crucified. So I think we're talking about Jerusalem there, mm-hmm. right? So, but I think that pulls it out from being him as the example. But you do see how the life of God's people parallels what has happened to Christ, okay? Which, so, so if, we now, if we look back, what is all this, what is all this saying then? But, it, wait a minute, though. Elijah and, and Moses, though, weren't they seen as kings and prophets? Uh, they would be law and prophets. Or law and prophets? Yeah, yeah, law and prophets. But, but it, so what I think, this is where the, like, parsing this out is one of the more difficult spots, but here's what I think he's getting at here, is that we have this understanding that um, if God's people kind of have these same things, okay, the things that were with God's people before, the, uh, the, the plagues and like all the power that was behind those things remains in his people to otherwise take his message to the world, Okay. Um, but notice they don't, they're not doing those things. They have the power to do those things, but we don't actually show any evidence in Revelation that they're doing them. We don't see that there's, that there's a plague being sent. We don't see that there's fire coming down to consume them. Okay? They're just things, they're attributes that are assigned. The same power that comes from God or is with his people in those areas is associated with his people through the Holy Spirit even now. Okay? And so and the responsibility then is to basically is to share the information about Jesus. Right During that time frame in which Jesus is gone, between when Jesus leaves and when Jesus comes back. We are, we are witnesses, uh, and that's that same word we said witness, uh, the derivative word is what? Martyr. Martyr. Okay? We, that, is, that is us. We are still that. And we are witnessing to that world in calls for repentance and understanding of who Jesus is, even under these circumstances. 
That, is, that remains our responsibility. We remain His two witnesses. We remain His body, uh, body of believers, whose job is to share this information with the world. So is the first part of it the measuring of God's people, the ones that belong to Him, and then is that kind of paralleling into these two witnesses then? Yeah, I would say they're describing the same people. Yeah. Now, so there is, um, if we'll be honest about our... I will grant authority to my two witnesses. Yeah. That's us. So we're being measured. Are we measured against? Are we measured equal to? I think, I think he's buffering the message. Because if you look what happens to the two witnesses, like they're treated shamefully, right? Okay, they are, uh, they are killed three and a half days. Some of the people in tribes and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. They're killed. They're treated shamefully. Okay, um, they're mocked. People are making merry and exchanging presents because of their torment. Or basically the words that they bring is what's causing division just like it always has. With the th- with the, the, what Jesus brings to the earth has always been that sword. And that same thing is happening when his people go out under his authority. Okay? But then they then their experience then mimics what happens with Jesus. But so I think what it is is that he's starting with that as kind of a buffer to say, look, just know that I measure you. Like you still belong to me. I'm still your spiritual protection here. Um, but I'm going to tell you that this is not going to from an earthly perspective. Um, I'm not making any physical promises here. Okay, I think that's I think that's what he's getting at here is to show I am still with you. That's why we get the pictures of Moses and Elijah. Um, but when it gets real bad, and you know that it got bad because Jesus is dead, all the apostles are dead, Antipas is dead, this is something that's continuing to happen to you, um, I am still with you. And even as, as people treat you shamefully um, and otherwise reject the message, just know that I'm still with you. I've not, I've not forgotten you. You're still spiritually mine. Which has been a consistent kind of theme with God um, and, the, and, and the messages to the churches in Revelation is, I know you're going to run into these things, I've not left you. Even though from an earthly perspective you're going to feel like that's the case, Again, which is the same message they got in Daniel when they were exiled to Babylon. It's a pretty consistent message of God that's saying, I am using earthly circumstances to call you to repentance and to reel myself to the world. Know that I've not left you. Um, but, you but your perseverance is what's necessary. You need to persevere even through these things uh, and continue to share, my, well, to share me. Well, that's reason to go back to Moses and Elijah. Yeah. Yeah. I was with them. I'll be with you. Yep, I agree. Okay. It just it cracks me up that I've read that like eleven times in the last week, and I didn't even call upon anything that I knew about Elijah and Moses with that. Yeah, I don't think I don't think it's a mistake, right? That like all, yeah. all these things connect back to things that a Moses and Elijah were doing. No, that wasn't a revelation problem. That was a boomer problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's just me reading it and reading it like nothing, and I'm just like, oh yeah, that makes sense. There's some dude that's pouring down water out of this guy. Yeah. And there's fire that's happening. That yeah. just sounds like a God thing to do, you know? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's not outside his realm. It just makes sense for me just to skim it over. Yeah. So one of the things that I think we should consider then is, is maybe what we're seeing a little bit in chapter 11 um, is some of the theological justification of the trumpet judgments. Right? If we understand, if this is our break, right? If I said that between the sixth and seventh judgment, we're supposed to kind of understand, well, how am I supposed to view these judgments? Does it give us a little bit better perspective as to the things that, that God is looking down and saying, these judgments are necessary? Because look, there's, as, as even his people have always done, they're shamefully treating those that bring my word. They're shamefully treating those, even though I can demonstrate that they are under the power of God, look at how they're being treated. 
Um, and so I think what we have here in, in this, this little break between the sixth and seventh trumpet um, is, is we have the veil. We, we got to see it from a little different angle where the previous angle was we got to see these judgments from earth or got to see the perspective of God's calling them to repentance and otherwise judging them for their behavior. We get to see a little bit of the background um, of the opposite angle where God knows what you're going through, um, and that's kind of where these things are coming from, even though what we wanted was vengeance and what God provided was a call to repentance through judgment. That's his consistent call to his people. It's a consistent call to the people that aren't his, is that he will use judgment to call you to repentance, and you will be saved through that judgment that ultimately comes from God. Uh, all right, so it continues. It says, uh, after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here, and they went up to heaven in a cloud. It sounds a little bit like John, right? Like we, at the start of chapter four, kind of that same call. Yeah, and we said that call, though, what this call to John was, was come see things from a different angle. I want you to continue to see things the way I see them. I'm helping you to know more, so even as these things occur around you, you don't, you're not afraid. Even in the midst of this persecution, you're not afraid. Even in the midst of judgment, we don't have fear, which means it's one of the reasons that we need to be real careful if, as we read Revelation. If we walk away from it and we're afraid, like some of that's a right understanding of who God is. A healthy fear of God's a good thing, right? But, it, but we're supposed to be encouraged by some of these things. And if we're walking afraid of it, generally I would submit that we're probably not reading it right. We need to be able to see what God is promising here and some of the, the trust that we have. We, then we don't end up fearing death. We say, what is earthly, it was an earthly fear to me. It's something that I no longer fear um, under the promises of God because he will use that even for his glory and my ultimate joy. Wasn't God's point of view sharing the Yeah, I would, yeah. And I think, that, I think that's a lot of the point is, is God saying, I know that you can only see what you can see. You can only see that people around you are dying. You can, in fact, what was I, um, I woke up this morning, well, it was a little bit, it was yesterday, I guess, but... Um, Last week, I'd read a story where uh, ISIS had, had captured, they went into a nunnery, and they shot four nuns, um, they shot, I don't know, like another eight people that didn't die, and then they captured the priest, the Catholic priest that was there, and they said, look, we're going to crucify him on Good Friday. Um, and I thought, no, no, they're certainly not going to do that. And they did. They very well did. Um, they attacked a, um, a gathering of Christians in Pakistan, and there's a guy that, like, I don't know how this guy found me on Facebook. Frankly, he kind of weirded me out for a while, but I've, I love him. Um, anyway, his name's Starfraz, and he's, um, he works at a, a church in Faslabad, Pakistan, which is about two hours away from where uh, they attacked a gathering of Christians on celebrating Easter Sunday, um, killed primarily women and children, about 70, and wounded 300 others, simply because of their belief in Christ. And from, from an earthly perspective... Right. All we can look at is, is, is carnage and chaos and say, I don't, how do I deal with this? How can this be, how can this be, how is this okay? But there's other cool stuff going on too. Agreed. Like there's a, the one guy, he, would get, he was a Christian going to get his head cut off. He gave the guy, the guy with the sword his Bible, was, I don't need this anymore, and knelt down. Mm-hmm. Well, the guy cut his head off. And he took a phone home, read the Bible, had a prayer from Jesus, he became a Christ follower, and now he's on the run from ISIS. So... So the truth is, so, and that, that kind of think reinforces what, the, what the, the benefit of John's providing heaven's perspective, 
right? We get to see things. That's why I don't think these are some of these images, which often we take as things that we see and physically expect to happen, are God's way of saying, I want you to see things from my perspective. I know you're going to go through these things. I know, and we talk a lot about uh, physical persecution because it sticks out, but like one of the other things is the social seduction, right? The ability for a society that doesn't follow Jesus to kind of rope you in and maybe pull you off track of where you're going. That was very true in Roman society, and frankly, we run that risk today in America of things that like, well, maybe maybe we can go ahead and do those things that, that uh, are off God's path because the rest of society is doing them. And God says, I need you to look at them from a different perspective. And I think that's what a lot, what a lot of this is doing is saying, I'm going to give you the gift of God's perspective on it. And it does, it does require judgment. It does require um, sifting. Um, but we also need to be reminded that even in those things, there's underlying cause of repentance. And God's saying, um, I will use judgment to get your attention because I want you to, I ultimately want you to come to me because there is a finality to this. There is finality in Revelation. Um, but like throughout time, these are measures of which God will use to otherwise bring, um, call people to repentance. Um, come up here and they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. This is going to be the sole time of which you have a series of judgments and there is a positive reaction. Every other time that you see a series of judgments from God, the reaction will be, and they refuse to repent. This is the only time where you see a measure of repentance. So we have collectively agreed on seven being the number of completion, correct? Yep. So what's with this one? 7,000 people were killed, and then the rest were terrified, meaning there's more than the 7,000. Yeah. Is this, am I looking too far into that read the rest of this book based off of seven being a number of completion, mm-hmm. everything, and then now there's more than this number here. Because I don't think we can take that 7,000 to be literal. Right. Um, we have not looked at numbers to be literal so far. Right. And then there's more. Yeah. Am, am I just reading too far into that, or what is that? No, so there are, um, there's a couple references in the Old Testament of 7,000, and it seems to be more of a demarcating of a, of a remnant. Or like basically a a distinct group of people that is not to otherwise indicate a literal count or a a broad sweeping number. It's basically, it's just a way to label them as 7,000. Okay, so it is literal. It doesn't necessarily mean that the 7,000 means a completion number. It's just... Yeah. Just given how the, the um, there's a couple Old Testament references that would yeah. use it that seem to use it in that way. Okay. Um, I would say that that's less distinct than some of the other numbers we've looked at. Like I wouldn't, you know, I'm not willing to put that on a desk calendar or anything. But like the other Old Testament references that use that 7,000 seem to use it as um, Ezekiel used it as a remnant. Like this is this is who remains. Um, here the opposite is kind of in play, but it's like basically a distinct group. Um, and I think that's just like three and a half is not to indicate a literal count or even half of completion. I think it's just supposed to be, it's a distinct amount of time of which there is an end. Um, which is again encouraging kind of to our uh, to our first century Christians who are reading and say, look, if, if, if we're the two witnesses, uh, if the body of Christ is this and they're going to be treated this way and, uh, and all these things, it's, it's comforting to say it's a finite amount of time. I know that it's a distinct marked out amount of time and, it's, and it's, it does have an end. And so I can be assured in that and if my call in is perseverance through those things. Okay. okay. Um, so just to kind of reiterate where we went and then we'll move on to the seventh trumpet is if I look at kind of all that we've looked through in, in chapter 11, some of the things that it reminds me or that I think that it still speaks to us um, even in, in our current context is, is look, we know that, that um, 
people will have negative reactions to the message of Christ. It, was, it happened to Jesus. Uh, it's something he warned them in Matthew 10 and, uh, that this was going to happen. That's why there's a shake your feet, right? Shake the dust off your feet. Some people will just not accept it, and we know that. Um, God will, he wants you to persevere anyway. You're called to remain in those circumstances to otherwise continue to spread that information as his witness, knowing that it has the, possi- the very real possibility of leading to your death. Um, and we use, and the, still, the power of the gifts of the church that we associate with the Old Testament prophets are things that are still associated with God's people. I don't know that we're necessarily seeing them in the same way, um, but like we would be lost, I think, to undercut the power of the Holy Spirit. And like, here's the deal, understanding what the Holy Spirit does, um, I don't know, it tends to be a contentious thing within churches. Um, here's what I would say. If whatever it is that you're attributing to the Holy Spirit brings glory to God and focuses on His amplification and the reduction of people, we probably got the right idea. Anytime that the Holy Spirit is something that we've attached to ourselves that brings glory to us and not to God, or even we try to share it with God, we probably have the wrong idea. But the Holy Spirit is still God. Um, I think it's probably dangerous to put, in, put the Holy Spirit in a box. And so do I think there's, um, there's, there's missionaries that have stories from you know, South America or places in Africa where they said, yeah, a guy has been raised from the dead. Will I believe that? God's done it. Um, I don't know that I need to start from the premise that, that God doesn't do as he pleases. Um, if you have a person that says, um, I have been gifted, me personally, to do X, Y, and Z um, so that you should fund that, and um, and only I can heal you, or I heal people, but you're actually not doing it unless someone's paying you. Like, yeah, that's a glorification of you. That doesn't sniff like God at all. But can God still do those things? Yeah, I think he can. And I think there's something in here that, that is otherwise giving us an impression that says um, the same spirit that kind of went along with the powers of the early church and prophets, priests, kings, um, is still associated with the believers today. It's just um, sometimes we try to harness that for our own benefit as opposed to the furthering of God's kingdom. Go ahead. Well, Matthew 25, it says it feed the hungry, visit people in jail, and a whole list of stuff. It doesn't about bringing them to Jesus. It's just serving these people, showing them who Jesus is. Yeah, no, I would agree that like a lot of the things um, of which we attempt to make our, our witness about um, is if we just if we treat people the way Jesus treated them, um, it carries with it like I can't help but want to share good news to people, right? That's why we call it good news. Um, I don't withhold any good news that I hear, and yet this one seems like it has a barrier to it. Um, and so, frankly, if I believe that it's good news, I tend to not have trouble sharing it. Um, if I see how Jesus looks at the world, then I tend not to struggle with looking at the world in the same way and, and trying to fight for the perspective that says, yeah, I would visit that guy in jail. Yeah, I would talk to a guy who completely disagrees with me because, you know, God's still after him. Maybe I'm part of that. Um, and that, that's the thing. It's a, um, it's a beautiful gift, but it also feels like a... It's not. It's weird because it's not really our load to carry, but it does become things that God tasks us with. Where He says, "If Jesus is the start of reconciling all things back to Him," and we will find out uh, again in, in the chapter um, to come, um, the fall of Satan is coupled with two things. It says that it happens at um, basically the sacrifice that that Jesus made on the cross and the testimony of the believers who were, would not shrink from death. Like you're coupled. Our our testimony, our witness to a world is at least coupled in the same sentence with Jesus' death on the cross. I'm not equating those things, but what I'm saying is, is that John could have listed anything and he put those two things together and said, this is part of God reconciling the world back to him. And so, that, I don't think that creates a burden. I think that's an awesome gift that we're part of that reconciliation process, which means we get to be part of a lot of really cool things. All right. Uh, second woe has passed. Uh, behold, the third woe is soon to come. 
Um, the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven. You know what's interesting is you remember the, the, the seventh seal? You guys remember what followed the seventh seal? Silence. 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 We've gone from seventh seal render silence to seventh seal. There were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and she shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who was. What's missing? Why? He's here. He's here. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Again, takes us back to the sovereign throne of God. Okay? That always kind of pulls us back and said, all these things were within my control. Um, what's really cool is that we go from a shift from woes on the earth to worship in heaven. Okay? At the hand of God, seeing what God has done always inspires worship around the throne. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who, was, who is and who was. He is no longer to come, for you've begun, taken your great power and begun to reign. What's interesting, and this is, this is harder to read in, in the English, but like these words are not, um, are not like future tense words. They're like a consistent. So when we say, but the nations raged, but your wrath came, um, that, the, that came part isn't like a future promise. It's worded in such a way that basically your wrath is always there. Like, uh, because if you notice, it's the time for the dead to be judged. If we said that there were um, people remaining on the earth, um, there were some that died and there's some that remained on the earth, but the judgment here is focused on the dead. So I, again, I don't think, I think this is what he is consistently doing, which is all these events that give us this idea of the transition of history over time. And it's not supposed to be a specific event because he always seems to come up right where it feels like this has got to be the end of the world. And then he backs off completely and starts retelling the story again from a slightly different perspective. Okay, so I think that's what's continuing to happen here. There just isn't enough, um, a, a lot of people. So remember, uh, smart people that love Jesus is our category of folks. There are a lot of people that will say this has to be describing kind of the end of the world. Um, I don't think that's consistent with kind of our program we've been to so far, but I understand where it's coming from. Okay, um, I, I still think it's describing kind of broad overview of how God sees the world, what judgment does, um, the nature of wrath calls for repentance, all those kind of things, and worship that is otherwise associated with it. It says, time for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. It's a good reminder that you, um, uh, heaven, and, and, and frankly, uh, God's reign is the great equalizer between how we think of people. The, um, you can Those words, small and great, I'm not sure captures it completely. Um, it has the, the connotations of like wealthy and powerful versus poor and not powerful. And those things are leveled at the throne of God. They are, in, they are not distinctions within the community of Christ. Okay, so they're, they're earthly distinctions that the world is caught up in. As Christians, those aren't things that we're having to contend with. Um, they are laid just like evil and chaos is laid bare at the throne of God. This great and small, these disparities, earthly counts and disparities are laid bare and even um, at the throne of Christ and during his reign. Um, and is otherwise is for destroying the destroyers uh, of the earth, which is kind of an interesting phrase. There's a transition here. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. Uh, and to be honest with you, besides kind of the um, 
the temple imagery that we've had so far, there's no other place in the Bible where you rarely get a concept of a heavenly temple. Because um, we talk of that place as a place where heaven and earth intersect, generally um, meaning God's presence. Um, this is the only time in the Bible that you're actually getting a heavenly temple kind of view. Um, it says, God's temple in heaven was opened, um, and the Ark of His Covenant was seen within His temple. What do you guys know, what do we know about the Ark of the Covenant? Yeah, it, it, it was Old Testament, yep. Yep, presence in the Holy of Holies is where, the, where, his, where it resided. Yeah, agreed. The original, like, Ten Commandments were set in... Yep. What was it? The second copy of the Ten Commandments. Second copy, yeah. Yeah. After, yeah. After Moses gave the old heave-ho to the first round. Yeah. And you could look upon it, but you couldn't touch it. Yeah, remember they were like, uh, that guy was going to catch it when it was tipping over and he yeah, died? Here's the deal. God says don't touch something. You've got to let that stuff go. You don't be reaching your hand out for any reason. But God, you don't understand, it's going to tip. He said, I said, do not touch it. I think the, the thing that he held the, the, um, the with the snake on it. Aaron. Aaron, Aaron yeah. Aaron, and uh, there was manna in there. Remember, we talked about that from the manna reference before. Yeah. And so all these are kind of associated with God's presence and God's promises. Okay. Yeah. Things that he's done, provisions for his people and those kind of things. And so it's kind of a, it's, um, it's a bit of a glorious looking thing. Like we, he's come to reign and then his temple is opened and uh, all these promises of God are, are basically exposed for everyone to see and probably be reminded of, uh, again, in light of all these things um, that has happened before here. And then, again, we're, we're brought back to God's sovereignty that says, all, these were always my promises. These were always my commitments to my people. Everything I've ever promised them has never wavered. Um, anything that I've done that... Um, you need to see through the things that I've promised my people and recognize that my actions are consistent with all these things. Okay? Nothing has shifted. Nothing has changed. These have always been the case. Okay. Um, so then we go moving into chapter 12. Um, and here's, here's what I think is happening now. Is I think we're going to start to see a different perspective that's going to answer the question, what, what's with the persecution? Okay, we're going to start to see the underlying spiritual reasons that come through all these earthly dangers that God's people are going through. The seduction through soci- uh, of the society that surrounds them. The physical persecution to try to get them to stop speaking. Um, I think that's what we're seeing revealed here in chapter 12. Uh, and there are, there's uh, various folks who will look and say there's another set of sevens in here. Again, that's not desk calendar material for me. I don't know. He, the rest of them are laid out pretty firmly, right? There are seven. Um, I think there are, you can look, you can get sevens out of when he says, um, and I saw, and I saw, and I saw. There's seven of those. Um, so you could, you could split it there. Um, there's like seven, sec- if this is our third woe, which is potential, there could be seven sections of that. I don't know that it matters so much to me here. So like, I'll point them out to you as I go, as I see them. Um, but I, I'm not so... From a theological perspective, I don't know that I'm all that committed that it has to be here because John is, was pretty sp- specific about how he's numbered everything up to this point and he's not numbering it here. So, you know, I don't know. I, maybe it's a deal, maybe it's not a deal, but we're, um, there, there is potentially a way to divide this into sevens. In fact, generally the debate isn't how to do it, not whether it's there. Um, but again, I don't know that I'm so caught up in that. I think we got enough to deal with. <laughs> is the, the counting of the sevens? Yeah. I think John's getting fancy in some certain places. Like, there's, um, there's a couple of things where, like, again, he didn't number them, but if you go through and count them, and we've seen that a lot, right? Nations, language, tongues, tribes, like, there's four, so there's methods of completion there. Um, he's going to get into a list of 28 problems of the kings of the earth. So you got a, a seven and a four in there. So he's just getting fancy in some of these places. Um, so I, there's more opportunity in here. I, I just don't know. We probably won't spend a bunch of time on it. All right, chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. 
She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for... 1,260 days. Three and a half years, time, times, half time. Okay? All right, let's start, let's start there. Um, who's the woman? Mary. Mary? Why do you, why do you think that? <laughs> I heard it from a guy on the subway. <laughs> okay. I, the, the, there does seem to be a Mary imagery here because we have a Jesus imagery. Yeah, we have a baby that's a, worth devouring, going to rule over uh, nations with a rod of iron. Sounds like our iron scepter, um, which is, uh, comes from the Psalms. Okay, that sounds like a Jesus. So, okay, I get some of her. He's caught up to God and to his throne. Yep, yep. So, so I think that like, I get a little bit of, of uh, Mary vibes here because I get Jesus vibes. And woman delivering Jesus, okay, sounds like a Mary. All right, I think it's got hints of that. Any other thoughts? Let's, uh, let me help. Let's look at uh, Genesis thirty-seven nine. Genesis thirty-seven nine. Yep. Uh, Mary, you're not gonna throw another lady in there, right? Uh, is another woman? Yeah. No, no, I don't think so. All right, here I'll I'll, uh, I'll read it to you. Um, I'll start in verse, uh, verse 5, 37 verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? See, here's the deal. Those guys didn't have any trouble telling dreams. We read Revelation, we go bonkers because we don't understand symbolism. He told a simple dream, and they're like, Hey, we're on to you. You're saying we're going to bow down to you and we don't like it. <laughs> um, all right. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. All right, here we go. Then, then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother, even his dad gets it, shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow yourselves to the ground before you? Now, here's my question. When it, when it talks about the sun, moon, and stars, okay, which is what we had, we got uh, clothes with the sun, with the moon at her feet, and a crown of 12 stars, okay, what is he talking about there? What, what does that actually represent as a group? What was it? Uh, close. I think you're, you're pointing in the right direction. Who, who was his dad's reaction was? Shall I? Who? Wait. Who is his dad? Jacob. Jacob. Or what's his other name? Israel. Israel. Okay. Israel, and basically me and my sons. Nation of Israel. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think we got a little bit of nation of Israel action going on in there. Okay. When when we say nation of Israel, we generally think God's people, right? Because we said. The Israel was redefined by Paul in Romans as saying it's God's people. It's not just Old Testament groups of folk. Okay, if you're my people, if you're God's people, you're Israel. Okay, so do I think we got? I think we got some action in there. 
I believe is, is uh, part, part of a reference. Um, and if we look at, uh, did I write another one? No, that's all I wrote. Um, so I think, I think both of those things are kind of in play for me when it comes to this. Let's see if we can read it and see if it makes sense as a description of, of basically God's people. Okay? All right. Uh, she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. W- what does this sound like? A Did you say a crow? No, I was saying a crown. Like royalty. Royalty. Yeah, okay, so we got seven. We got seven. Yeah, we got authority. We got ten horns. We got power. Um, seven heads. And it's a great red. This is a, a freaky looking beast of a thing, right? Now, where, where have we seen freaky beasts before, not in Revelation? Daniel. I love it. Let's look at Daniel. Daniel 7. Daniel 7. <laughs> All right. Daniel 7. Uh, I'll read this to you as well. And we'll see, we'll, see if this, um, we'll see if this sounds like our Daniel 7 beast. Um, so he's talking about beasts. Uh, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea. Still trouble. Sea's always going to be trouble. Different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked to its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear, it was raised up on one side, it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it and had how many horns? Ten. Okay, we got ten horns. Uh, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in his, this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Now let's go to the, um, farther in Daniel 7. Um, and let's see, he's going to talk about the fourth beast some more, start, starting in verse 19. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and of which devoured and broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast. There shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall rise and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and he shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. So, sounds a little bit like our beast, right? Okay, he's got some similarities to that. 
uh, dragon, let's look at um, other, a couple other places in Scripture where we have uh, a dragon. Ezekiel 29, 3. Uh, all right, here we go. Uh, this, and this is a prophecy against Egypt um, in Ezekiel 29. It says, In the tenth year, in the tenth month, and the twelfth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams that says, My Nile is my own, and I made it for myself. And we also have a reference in Ezekiel 32, verses 2 to 3. Yep, Ezekiel 32, verses 2 to 3. Uh, Also uh, over Pharaoh, in the 12th year, in the 12th month, and the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, You consider yourself a lion of the nations, but you are like a dragon in the seas. You burst forth in your rivers, trouble the waters with your feet, and foul their rivers. Thus says the Lord God, I will throw my net over you with the host of many peoples, and they will haul you up in my dragnet. So um, if you look at it through Scripture, we seem to have dragons as like a power of evil that opposes God's people. Okay, It seems to be a word that God attaches to oppressors of his people. Um, He has a a similar reference to Gog. which is a bit of an indistinct reference, but like um, I was reading that earlier today and like, I don't know what it, what it would feel like to be the, on the other end of God saying something like, uh, say to Gog, I am against you. Like straight up, God's like, I am, I'm just against you and here's, here's how this is going to kind of play out. Um, but those, those are kind of where the, uh, the dragon references come from. Um, but we also get um, a further definition of who the dragon is later on. Let's see here. Uh, when the dragon saw that he'd be in through... Let's see. Is that what I want? Yeah, here we go. Um, I'll read just a little bit and we'll get a better idea of the dragon then we'll come back. Um, verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Okay. We spent a lot of time on Ezekiel. That's he's, he's Satan. Okay. The accuser. Um, and a lot of times it is, um, it, Satan is not used as a proper noun, it's the Satan, okay, or the accuser, okay, or the, the person that is, that is accusing. Um, okay, so we have, we have, what's interesting is we look at this, uh, this red dragon, if this is Satan, um, his head, he's got seven diadems, so what's interesting is that's a different word, generally we think diadems is crowns, um, but it's a different word than the crowns that he attaches, that God wears here. Um, it seems like it might have a bit of a parody, parody aspect. Okay, he he's, he looks he has some level of power. He's made to look a little like God, um, but obviously isn't. He falls short of that, and we're going to see that in the description of some of these beasts. There's the, the one is wounded. Okay, it has like a mortal wound, but it lives, so it looks kind of like God. And there's some of these descriptions that it's 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 kind of like a mockery. They are tempting to be what God is, and they will never be that. Okay, but that's the way John kind of describes them. And so I think there's there may be a little bit of that in the diadems. Like possibly, because otherwise I can't. Uh, I'm not sure why why the use of a different word there. Um, his tail swept down a third of the stars in heaven. So that has a reference back to Daniel eight, um, which has to do with the persecution of God's people. Um, basically, that they're thrown down and trampled upon. Um, which again, we've seen language similar to that. So I think that's that that one um, of all the stuff that we've talked about today and will continue to talk about. That's the hardest reference for me. I, I'm just not, I'm not certain on that. Um, it has it smells a little bit like Daniel eight that it would it would make sense to the persecution of his people but like it's different than Daniel 8 as it is referencing stars of heaven which we can think of as saints possibly but like it also has them kind of coming down from heaven to earth 
And so it doesn't have to be a physical place, but there's part of that that I'm just not... I told you I'd, I'd tell you when I wasn't clear on something. I'm not certain of that. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of different options out there, but most people will land on it. We're supposed to understand it as a persecution of the saints at the hands of the dragon, okay? which, which shouldn't surprise us because we've already kind of seen that broad principle played out in a number of the, in a number of the things. Okay. Does Persia have any play in this with the diadems and how those kingdoms were... Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, what, you mean like uh, like standing um, as a representative kingdom type of thing? Yeah. I, it's possible. Um, they, they, Persian background that would come to bear in, in this? Not that I've seen. Um, it uses, like, it does use that concept, but mostly it falls onto Babylon. Like, Babylon's a pretty consistent reference of, like, looking back at a kingdom and using it as um, standing out. So, I mean, it's not impossible, I don't, uh, but I don't know of it. I'll put it that way. Um, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Do we think, what is, is it at least plausible, you don't have to agree with me here, but is it plausible to think that if, if the woman is supposed to kind of represent God's people, that Jesus came out of God's people? Representative. I, I think that's, that, that's what makes sense to me, that like, this is not necessarily supposed to be a, a specific woman in time, although it does sound like Mary. Um, there's aspects of this that are difficult to sound like Mary. Um, so I, I think that's, that's where I'm comfortable saying I think it's representative of God's people, um, and Jesus comes out of God's people, which is a promise that Moses makes. Remember, he said, there will be one like me um, that will come from God's people. And, so, and that was referring to Jesus. That's how that ties together for me. Um, but again, I, I think there are other options there that are plausible. Um, so he wants to devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Again, I think that sniffs like Jesus. Um, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So I think we have the birth, death, resurrection of Jesus in like a half a sentence. Okay? Because that's not the focus of what's going on here. Although it will be the trigger of what follows. Um, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she was to be nourished for 1,260 days. Again, that's the same time of which the holy city is trampled. It's the same time of which the church is under persecution. It is the same promise that God has consistently made, which is not necessarily physical protection. Okay? But when he says, I will bear you up on eagle's wings, um, which he's talking to the, the people as part of the Exodus, you definitely have kind of an Exodus flavor still in here. Um, it is saying, I will be with you, but it's otherwise not making an earthly promise of protection because we already know that from the two witnesses, um, he will use you for his ends and they will not, o- not always have positive earthly outcomes, for, at least from an earthly perspective. Go ahead, Dan. Well, do we know how much time Jesus spent in Egypt after the birth of the um, you, you mean, was it three and a half? Was it three and a half years? <laughs> yeah, I think it was two. I think it was two. Um, but I, so I think, that's the, I think that's the image that we're having here. Is, it's similar, like a consistent message that we're seeing. is like they're be, You're being nourished. You're still being cared for. God is still providing for you. It's just not promising a physical protection. Now, war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels, Michael's a real dude, legit guy. As a matter of fact, you see him, he shows back up in the book of Jude where he's there contending over Moses' body. We were looking that up because we watched the, um, uh, the Ten Commandments on, was it Saturday night? Saturday night, anyway. Um, and uh, the question is, like, what happened to Moses? And the, the Jude, the book of Jude has this kind of, it's like a throwaway description, but it's like Satan and uh, the archangel Michael are like tussling over Moses' body. And, uh, and that kind of thing. So he does, he does show up. Um, 
And so the, his angels are fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death there's our coupling okay part what seems to be coupled with the chucking of satan out of heaven is the death of christ on the cross and um the word of their testimony oh, that's us for they loved not their lives even unto death that's cool i don't know that i ever would have put the work that god has us doing in that same parameter and again i'm not saying equal if you understand but what i'm saying is that he's coupled them here um, as part of that. Now, what's interesting here is it calls into question, and this is difficult because we've talked a lot about timing not being a thing in Revelation. This tend to speak to things over time. But what's interesting is that if you're tying Satan's kind of removal from heaven um, to the blood of the cross, is it possible that if we understand that Satan was chucked out of heaven before the creation of the world, that perhaps that didn't actually happen there? That his remove, permanent removal from heaven happens at the Christ event. And when I say that, that's his, his birth, death, resurrection. Okay, his death on the cross has that effect on Satan as opposed to it happening before the beginning of the world. Here's some things to consider. Was, was Satan allowed into heaven okay, as, at, at the, while the world was created? Yes. It happens in Job. Yeah, does he not? He approaches the throne room of God, and he's and he's he's basically harassing Job. It's a bit of an accusation of a brother, if you want to think of it that way. Okay, um, what seems to be the case is that Satan is allowed to travel to and from earth and heaven. He's permitted in there, and that perhaps it was the death of Christ that basically seals this and says you are no longer permitted to accuse the brothers in the throne. You, you you've been shackled. Okay, you're denying the you've been denied access to the throne of God. Now, does this change anything substantially with how I understand things in the Bible? Not really, but it's just a thought. Like our understanding that this happened before creation comes from a couple things. A lot of it's tied to John Milton's description in Paradise Lost. There's an epic poem by John Milton, and like he describes it that way. Um, there's a section in Ezekiel which talks about Satan being thrown down. Uh, well, is misinterpreted as being Satan thrown down. It's really the the high and mighty thought of the king of Babylon. And Jesus says, you've been tossed from the heavens that you basically tried to walk into um, and you don't belong there. That actually doesn't belong to Satan. Um, so I think that's where a lot of that stuff comes from. We think, um, how could, if he's deceived Eve, how could he still be allowed to go back and forth? But like, God actually kind of tolerated some stuff from Satan that I was that I'm a bit surprised at, especially that interaction with Job. Well, especially this line where it says the accuser accuses in front of God night and day, night and day. Yeah. He's just been there accusing and accusing. He probably goes out and wanders around, comes back and accusing, accusing. And... Yep. Which is interesting because, like, if he's the accuser of brothers at the throne of God, if your brothers, if the earth hadn't been created yet, if it was before the creation of the world, then I, like, he's like a pre-accusing. Yeah. And again, time's a fluid thing in Revelation, so that's why I'm not, I'm not going to be overly firm on this. But it's just a thought. It's just a thought of, like, why we believe some of the things that we believe, because, like, that's what I would have told you, is that he was chucked before heaven started. There's some kind of war that went on. Um, but this is going to play, there, there is something important that I think ties in with this, and um, I'll say this out loud, and we'll kind of flesh this out a little bit later. But, like, what is the impact of Christ's death on the cross to Satan's impact on the world? 
about what he's able to do. Because what, what, what we're going to see coming up here, and I think of a lot of what undergirds what the churches are going through, is this what's going to say, um, Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, because Satan has been thrown down. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. What, what, what's undergirding some of this deception of God's people? What's undergirding the prosecution of God's people? A fledgling Satan, who I think has been bound who I think is, 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 is binded in a way by Christ's death. Th- things that I think that represented binding. One, he's no longer allowed to be in the presence of God accusing brothers at the throne. I think Jesus has, has taken care of that. That no longer is allowed to happen. Two, one of Satan's greatest threats was death. That's what, he can't threaten you with much else, but like that's the ultimate punishment, is it not? Yeah. Through Christ's death on the cross, his greatest threat is our greatest victory. His greatest threat of death, you'll die, is our greatest victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? He's like, it's basically been taken away from him. He can harass you for a while. (laughs) He can try to distract you from the purposes of God. He can try to take you off the path of what God has you to do. But death, that's that's the part of what God is reinforcing here is saying, he's taken the threat of death as something for us to fear away completely. That happens at the cross of Christ. So I think Satan's been bound. I think he's been bound. He's not, he doesn't have the same threats as he's always been able to offer. Okay? There's a binding there. This will, this will become important. You'll understand like why, I'm, why the, I think this is important because Satan will have to be released later on in Revelation. And I think our concept of how he is bound and in what way becomes important for how we understand that releasing. Because frankly, nothing causes trouble like saying we have to release Satan. He was bound and then like the, the way that the Bible describes it, it's like an imperative. It's a godly imperative. It must occur. Um, so I think we have to try to understand what does binding mean? Does it mean capture completely? Or does it mean, um, the word is, uh, Revelation uses is fetters. Okay, something like, like you're shackled. Okay, that doesn't mean I can't move. It doesn't mean I can't do anything. Some, some, some folks have used the, the phrase like a dog on a chain. I'm not sure that's completely right, but like it's the right principle. Um, you're shackled, but it doesn't mean that you're gone. And it doesn't mean that you're taken off the process. So is Satan still active in the world? Yeah, is he still thrashing around in wrath because his time is short? Yeah, that still makes sense to me. All those things seem true. But is he limited? Is he bound? I think that makes sense within all those time parameters. I think all those things fit together, okay? Well, potentially, but that's not what the Bible uses. The Bible specifically uses bound. Um, because I've heard the dog chain thing too. Like he, he can only go so far. Yeah. Like the chain's only so long and he can only go in this. And I don't, what I think though is like, I think we think about that, the right way to think about that is not that he's doing anything different than what he has always done. It's just the consequences have changed because of what Christ has done. Like he hasn't, uh, because Jesus basically changed the game. He changed the understanding of threatening them with death. Fine, they'll die. That's part of your defeat. You were defeated by the people of God, like unto death and by your witness. So between Christ and God's people, that's part of your defeat. The very thing that you're going to threaten them with is the thing that conquers you. That's cool. God does that. I like what God does with stuff like that. Well, in today's world, I was reading an article about some of the families of the original, um, the guys that were lined up on the beach and beheaded by ISIS. In Egypt, yeah. And their families were talking about how they're turning this morning into dancing. It's just like you're killing them, and you think that that's horrific. We're not going to allow it to be because thank you. Our, our loved ones are, are with their king. They're with God, and we'll be there soon. So, like, 
Yeah. I guess do your worst, I guess. But right. The thing that was the threat isn't a threat. Quicker, yeah. You know, and, and it was causing, and they were talking about just some different statistics about how, how Christianity is exploding in those parts of the world just from seeing how the families of these slain yeah. people have embraced it and gone on then and, and become empowered by it. Really. Yeah. And, know, and just kind of empowering more people to... And that's traditionally been true, um, is that um, places where the church is persecuted tend to be places where the gospel explodes. Ch- China's been like that. Iran is very much like that. Um, and I don't, I don't know, maybe it's a right, just a right understanding. I, I don't, you know. But um, the blood of the saints seems to otherwise fuel the growth of the church, and has traditionally. Right. Yeah. Well, also the Holy Spirit for the day of Pentecost has been released to... Anybody's willing to accept that gift. Mm-hmm. With that, we now have power to take on Satan in the name of Jesus Christ. He's powerless. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think I think that's a lot of if we understand kind of our role in God's reconciliation and even to the defeat of Satan. Um, I don't. Maybe it's just a good reminder. Like like when I get up in the morning, I'm. I'm part of. I'm blessed that God has allowed us to be part of that process. Not only is it a gift to us, like we benefit um, from that, but like we are also who God uses to help do those things as well. And like that's a reminder for the churches in Asia Minor. That remains a reminder for us. If worship of Satan is not the point. It's worship of self. Started in the garden and it goes through all of history. Isn't that the power that Satan has? Over the earth at this point, because it's the new kingdom of right. Yeah, that is gone. But you still worship yourself. Correct. Right. He's still not persevering. Exactly. And so that's why, like, I, like when we say bound, I think effect, like, still effective with the subtle things, like I'll worship me. I'll, I'll do the things that I care about. I've kind of distracted. Which is the that's a good point because, like, again, we talk a lot about the physical persecution because, frankly, those examples stand out better. But like the the seven churches of Asia Minor are very much caught into. Um, a culture of self that goes along with the Roman the Roman system of worship or trying to pull you away with what Jesus has. And frankly, um, I said it was the first or second week that we run a risk of blindness in the United States and Western Christianity specifically is because that's where our risks are more at. I'm not, no one's likely to come in here and take a sword to my face. It's just not, it's not as likely. Okay. But can I be distracted? Can I be called blind um, and end up worshiping things that honor me like probably money, um, probably time, how I look at my own time, Probably how I look at my comfort. Yeah, I think those are risks that we definitely run. And frankly, the risks that there's places in the world, like those aren't even things that they would consider as a risk because they don't have them anyway. We have them in abundance and can cause blindness in us. So we have to be very careful. And I think that's where our risks are way more than physical persecution. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. Does it give way to a church within a church? Sort of a, you, know, you have the church. Yeah. And you have a church within the church, those who persevere, those who don't. I mean, that's the groundwork is kind of being laid here. That you're in, rest, you're in another kingdom now, where nobody dies. In fact, everybody's saved. Yeah. Um, but you have to persevere. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Your story is one. It's it's a. There's an already and not yet aspect to this. Where like you're already saved. Like this is not a. Hey, I am. Are are you going to be saved? No. No. I've done. It's done. Jesus has done the work of being saved. Now I'm just living out the life that reflects that. And whether it's on the earth or whether my body's gone and I and I'm with Jesus. Either way, that is my state. But like. Uh, from a church within a church, is there um, uh, not not everyone who calls themselves Israel is Israel, right? Not everyone who says I follow Jesus is really following Jesus, and I think that's always been the case with God's people, and that's certainly the case now. Well, look at how this all started with the with the letters to the churches, 
Right. Yeah. They're, called, they're all called on the map. Yeah. There's how many didn't have any issues? One? Two. Two. Two didn't have issues, yeah. Two were like completely awful. And then three just we needed some encouragement. Yeah, we need some encouragement. Minor harassment. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So do you think that this uh, lays some groundwork for salvation and not be so personal? Um, uh, yeah, not not. Uh, yes, no. I would very much say it's kingdom related. I think you are um, when you are saved. What it means is that you're part of a saved community. God came to save His people, and you are part of those people. Um, I think it's far less of a personal thing. That's a revelation for a lot of people, wouldn't you think? Yeah, because we because we'd mostly talk about personal salvation, right. and the truth is that when we talk about personal salvation, like I think we're actually almost saying. What, are the, what I would say is true, it's just that like we've attached that as if God, God the, the, the vision that comes out later in Revelation is a marriage. Okay? There's a marriage thing between God and his people. What I don't see is a bunch of individual marriages. God marries Ben, God marries Dan Custis, God marries Buva, and then April, right? It's, it's his people. It's, he always treats, like we see how often Israel coming up here as a, as a people, they are a saved people. We are a saved kingdom. As members of a kingdom who is saved, then yeah. That's part of my experience, part of my identity. Um, the personal part of it was I joined the kingdom. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, I would, that's, I would believe that. Yeah, I would. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, devil, we said perhaps not uh, before the world. Ah, when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle uh, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. We said time, times, half time. Serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Did we just get a definition of her offspring? Yeah, we did. We did. So, makes sense as God's people, right? Okay. Uh, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, and he stood on the sand of the sea. So, our friend Antipas, who died out of one of the churches, yeah, he's a casualty of the war. A cop, the Coptic Christians in Egypt, the folks worshiping Christ, and women and children worshiping Christ in Pakistan. Uh, Catholic priest. They're, they're, a war, right? So now, can I look around and say, I, I can see, I read those things, and like, I don't know what I was thinking. Like, I, I read that story about that priest, and this was before they, they did it, and I thought, oh, that, that's awful. I, I'll be honest with you, I didn't used to feel that. I didn't used to, uh, and when I say I didn't feel that, it's not like I didn't recognize that it was horrible, but like, um, I felt disassociated with things. Um, I live in an insular country. We don't, we're not having that so much. Um, I mean, it's happening. Don't, don't get me wrong. It's happening in... in places within the United States, just certainly not on that level and generally not to that extreme. Um, but I felt disassociated with that. But like one of the things that Revelation, I suppose, continues to remind me is that um, uh, water is thicker than blood in the kingdom of Jesus, right? Where, where I share a community of baptized believers, people who've committed to following Christ and being part of his kingdom, um, where I know the word of Jesus will split families. I will never be split from my community. And there are people that are dying who love Jesus in the exact same way I do. And the reason that I'm not dead is because I don't live there. But that's it. Because they believe the same things I believe. They follow the same Christ I believe. And I would be at that service in Pakistan and I would die in that bomb for what they believe. And so does that, I, I don't know that I'm supposed to see that as fortunate. 
um, or a blessing from God, because that seems to imply that those guys aren't blessed having died at the hand of that. I, I think that's the wrong thought. Our physical protection, we, we might have to pull that out of the rafters a little bit and try not to think that we're blessed because we're comfortable, because that seems like a biblical risk. seems like it always has been. A, our, comf- our physical comfort, our potential personal idolatry is a physical risk. But, uh, I don't know, like I felt... Like it made me, it, it made me sad. It made me feel a connection to people in a way that I don't know that I've ever given myself to feel that way, and I probably should. Um, whereas that that could have been me, and I'm not sad for myself, but I, you know, no one wants to see that. Um, and to recognize that, like, can I be comforted in Revelation even there? Because that's what the purpose of Revelation is: is people in the exact same circumstance looking at the exact same thing and saying, "Hey, I know." God's saying, "I know. I know that seems bad." They do, right? And, and that's the encouragement of Revelation, right? It's like, that's the perspective that I have to, God is sharing his perspective with me that without a book like Revelation, I'm, I'm really going to struggle because I'm going to see that and say, hey, God, how could you let that happen? Those are kids. I just, I just said to Rick tonight, it's just like, it reminds me of those calling out, when will you avenge our, when is it going to be enough? When is that going to be done? Yeah, and I get, I feel that. Yeah. I feel that. I say, God, those are women, like, women and children. I feel that. Yeah, like, when, when are you, you going to be done? And so, but even then, I can learn from the patience of God that says, it will be more. Yeah. I still love this world. I will still do what it takes to bring them to repentance. And so, and so I've got this under control. And that, again, like I said, one of the things that will test your, your faith and trust in a holy God is not whether you believe in something that is a gift to you like your salvation. That doesn't tend to be the struggle. That's what we talk about, right? Like, will you accept a free gift that gets you out of the trouble? Well, yeah, everybody's in for that. But can I trust the God that gives it that says that gift will come with your death potentially? And true life is in that. It will force you to, to at least embrace what God is laying out in front of you. And it, a lot of times we ignore the death of Jesus, not intentionally, right? But how he died, if we are followers of Jesus Christ that could succumb to the exact same thing, do we ignore that our gift came with the price? And sometimes that price is also our lives. And like, at least can, we, can I be honest about what I'm believing? And to be honest with you, that's one of the things that we do a great disservice to people when we talk to them about Jesus. And I'm, it's still good news. I'm not saying it's not good news, but like the good news is, is Christ is sovereign even in those things. Even in a world that I have trouble looking at and say, as a human, I can't even digest this, God. But can I trust that you have this under control? And then can I look at the world a little bit differently because of that? And so that's still good news. Because I don't know any other good news that comes out of a circumstance like that in Pakistan. Except for that at the foot of the throne, even chaos is quelmed. And God knows it. And even then he says more will happen, but I, it's under my control. And I can pick confidence in that. But we may do people a disservice if we never, if we introduce them to a savior, but never a Lord. Nothing that they have to submit to, not a God, not a ruler, not someone who's sovereign over things, but we just, he's just the gift giver. And like, I, we, we sometimes pervert that. We like, from a church perspective, um, it's easy to pick out the churches that are promising things that God never promised. He never promised your wealth. He never, he's obviously not promising your life comfort or your consistency like if that's what we think if that's a church that we're if that's the message that we're giving out good luck convincing the christians in revelation that that was god's promise okay it's it's not consistent but those guys are kind of easy to pick out i think the more subtle thing that we fall victim to um is is actually having to fully embrace a lord that calls me to follow jesus in whatever that looks like maybe it's death maybe it's not it's not likely here. It's just not likely here. And he's not calling you to go over and die somewhere. But, what I'm, but it's, it's what I said uh, within our first two weeks is what's on the table. Am I following Jesus and everything I got? And so I think we do people a disservice. And frankly, they don't even know a full Jesus. And that's not cool. 
Like, you, I, need, I want you to know all of Jesus, the power of his sovereignty, and what that means for the world that sits around us. And, like, um, we don't need to protect aspects of who God is. We need, we need to open up full to who God is. And that includes things that I have trouble digesting, but in relief of that, I can look at the world and say, I know God better for knowing he's sovereign even in those circumstances, even though I can't stomach it. And that is difficult. And that's, the, like, again, that's not even my... I don't even know how I would react. Like, you, you hear those stories that you were talking about of people... Um, saying we will we can celebrate this even in the face of that and like and i think i don't know i don't know <laughs> uh i need god to do that for me because i don't know well and we watched a couple of different things this last week during easter week we watched this deal they did kind of like a new age uh easter story in uh new orleans oh yeah and it was a live thing yeah they just kind of put like a and the part where they're supposed to be in the garden, they're in this park or whatever, uh-huh. the cops come rolling in or whatever. Yeah. Half of them scatter and the other ones charge the cops and they're dragging Jesus, throwing him in the back of a cop car. Yeah. You know, and then we watched The Passion the other night and, and Peter's like, I'll, I'll die. I'll go with you and I'll die. And then just that struggle. Yeah. Of, I don't know him. I don't know. Just for your own fear. And I'm like, oh, I see myself in that. I yeah. Don't know. Would I, would I just go rush him right in and right. stand right up there? Peter's the easy foil. We're like, oh, ha-ha, Peter's, oh, oh, he, he gets too excited. No, we wouldn't act like Peter. I'm like, yeah, you would. Yes, I would. Yes, I would. Well, I would be the fool. We read the end of the story. God wins. That's our hope. Regardless of what happens, whether we lose our job or we're homeless or we're president of the United States or whatever, we have the hope that no matter what happens, Jesus is winning. No, and that's, that's one of the things. There was actually an article. Uh, we talked about, a little bit about this on the radio show last week is that um, one of the risks that we come is, especially in America, we've got a, we just got a significant cultural fear. We're afraid of everything. We're afraid of who the next president is going to be. We're afraid of like things that happen in the government. We're afraid of like all these things that, like I don't know, grand scheme. Maybe we're too caught up in a different... Jared mentioned this on Sunday. Maybe we're too caught up in a different kingdom, <laughs> right? What are, the, what are the people of God supposed to fear? Like, here's the deal. I still vote because people are nuts. Like, there, there are nutty people. Like, and there's, there's people do ridiculous things with government. And like, uh, you know, like, I, I think you have to be right and reasonable with God has placed you. I'm not saying bow out of it, but what I'm saying is like, are we pouring into our perspective one that fears a, an earthly kingdom or one that can take whatever concerns that come from that in stride of what we understand of a larger kingdom? And it's, I'm not saying that, that bad things don't shake out. We know that they do. I think Revelation puts all that in the barest terms possible. It's just... Um, what are, we really af- what are we really afraid of? And is it a godly fear or is it just people stuff? And can we like, you know, maybe I don't like that guy. Maybe that guy's a total disaster for president. Uh, or maybe he's awesome. Either way, he's not God. Either way, it's not his kingdom. And, e- and frankly, nobody that you put ahead of the United States government is going to rule a kingdom like Jesus is not on the ballot. All right? So let's just get that straight now. He's not on the ballot. So we, got, we have other kingdom business of which where we live and the communities that surround us and the states that we're in and the countries we're in are part of our community. So I'm not bowing out of that. But I'm also not putting in my faith of a worldly kingdom to act like they're Jesus' kingdom. That's not how Jesus' kingdom worked. He didn't set up an earthly kingdom. Most likely intentionally. That was the one thing, remember, remember in Judges, like he, um, God is ruling over the people directly. And then when they reject him, he said they didn't, they were asking for a king. And he says, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. They've rejected me as king. And so do we think Jesus is going to show up and do an earthly kingdom, the very thing that they asked for that rejected God? That doesn't seem likely. So, so anyway, so don't, just don't put, it's not so heavy. Don't put on an earthly kingdom to be, to be Jesus' kingdom. Jesus already runs it. We don't need to vote for a guy. We don't need to, you know, like, 
be part of the process, certainly, because that's where God put you. It's part of your community. But like, um, it's just the fear is not is misplaced. I think it's misplaced. We just got to be careful about what we get caught up in. What is soaking up a lot of our time? Um, I stopped listening to talk radio actually for that same reason. How much I, how, the concern that I was taking in over um, how much how much of which kingdom was I pouring in? What was I reading? What was I listening to? I still care about stuff, but like, um, oh, fingers on the. I am afraid of that. Um, Lightning strike. <laughs> anyway, so anyway, like I, I looked at proportion. Um, I looked at the proportion of how much um, how much Bible reading I was doing, how much I was thinking about kind of the trajectory and things that are important in God's kingdom, and then how much I was soaking in that were earthly kingdom things. And I, one didn't need to die, but it was out of balance. So I so I tried to shift the balance. I'm trying to be intentional about how much I what I'm putting in for my balance of kingdoms. Does that make sense? So, all right. First beast. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. Looks like our dragon, doesn't it? Yes. Okay, it's not the dragon, but it's, uh, it's, it, it seems to have some association with him. Okay, so we're st- uh, sorry, start chapter 13. Um, I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns. It's got more diadems. Um, and a blasphemous name's on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. All three of those were back in seven. Daniel 7. Okay, very good. Uh, and to it, in the dragon gave his power, okay, makes sense, uh, and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. Okay, I think our parody has begun. Okay, something that kind of seems like Jesus, but obviously isn't, isn't quite Jesus. Because Jesus had a mortal wound. Remember when we looked at um, the lamb that looked like it was slain, right? We saw a similar description of Jesus as the lamb that looked like it was slain, but it was standing on the throne conquering. Okay? It's, it's kind of got that vibe to it. And um, we are going to see that happen in, um, this is the start of a chiasm. Um, do you guys remember what a chiasm was? Anybody remember? Yeah, it's where you start a, co- a thought and then you work your way into uh, a focal point within the thought and then it comes back out and it ends in the same place that it started. Yep. It's chiastic writing. Yeah, yeah. So uh, a chiasm is going to be this. You're going to say A, B, C, prime, prime. Okay. So it's, it's generally going to, you can think of it as like a shape of an arrow. So you're going to introduce a concept here. Um, this is going to be one element of it, element two, element three, and then they're going to parallel each other. So you're going to re-talk about element three. Uh, they call it uh, C prime. Okay, B prime is going to match up with this one. A prime is going to say, we saw a little bit of a chiastic structure in the churches because we saw churches that were paralleled by like um, people that had no commendation and then two churches were paralleled, the ones that like they got all commendation. They were doing a great job. Jesus didn't say anything just to keep going. Um, and then it was focused on, and there was a focus on like a group, three churches here that were kind of the tip of the arrow. And so in Jewish thinking, what that t- tends to mean is like, this is kind of the main point. It's not that these aren't viable points um, it's just that this tends to be the main focus of what they're talking about. Um, 13 introduces a chiastic structure in how he deals. You're going to see, um, we see, a, you got, you got um, beasts and then, um, oh shoot, I think I've got these wrong. Or no, um, we, we already, we were introduced to Satan. Okay, so we already have our Satan introduction, that's A. Um, and then you've got your beasts, B, and then we're going to see Babylon is going to be C. And then what's going to happen, that's uh, 13, 14, 15, and then I think it's 18, 19, and 20, or 17, 18, 19, they're going to be dispatched with in the opposite order. Okay, God's going to deal with Babylon, then God's going to deal with the beasts, and then finally God's going to deal with Satan. Okay, so they're going to be at a, a bit of a chiastic structure. Um, what's interesting about this is when we say Babylon in their time, this is probably Rome, but we can probably think of basically all um, governments. 
Okay, systems of government that otherwise point people away from Jesus, which would be that Babylon had done that, uh, Rome had done that. Um, and this, this is the point of the chiasm, likely because this is what they're actually dealing with, right? This is Satan's behind the scenes. He's part with, like, we got, we got that vision, right? We got to see that it's that kind of wrath of fledgling of Satan that's causing these things. These fellas, our beasts, are working on behalf of this, okay? But still, it's not a tangible thing. They're not actually, like, duking it out with them, okay? Um, but this is kind of the, the tangible output, Okay? Is it ends up in, in infrastructures. And I don't mean to say all governments are evil. Let's try to keep this in perspective. But like, um, notice a lot of times what civil governments do is they do call you to a fealty, to a, a commitment. Like, we, we worship this. Not, and, and we wouldn't think of it in worship in the way that we worship God, but like, this is what we really care about. This is who we pledge our allegiance to. Yeah, exactly. Okay? So the risk here is, is that... And I, we probably run, we've certainly run some risks in America for a lot of the, the freedoms that come with what we do is that some of our ideals then focus on things that are not God's kingdom things, okay, but out of priority. So, um, so anyway, I think this, we've, we've kind of started our, a little bit of a chiastic structure with uh, dealing with the people that are kind of adversarial uh, to God, okay? You will never use that in all your life unless you're in another class with me, but it's worth knowing. <laughs> I was going to ask you, like, isn't that the same thing like that happened in Acts? Like, basically, like, the Pharisees were scared to let Jesus' word get out because Rome would have, they were scared Rome would have killed everybody. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly right. And the, a lot of the plight of the, um, like, the martyrdom accounts um, of the early Christians has to do with uh, Rome not tolerating um, what looks to point to Jesus, who is basically another government or another kingdom, right? If Jesus is proclaiming what he proclaims, and I say that I follow that, and I say that worshiping here is inconsistent with worshiping Jesus, um, then yeah, that's what tends to bring the sword. Romans really did not care about Jesus, except for he, he claimed what they thought rightfully belonged to them. And where God's people would not split their allegiance, a lot of them paid the price for it. You're, and, and Acts is a, is a great example of that. Absolutely. Uh, okay, so we got, a, we got a beast kind of rising out of the sea. Uh, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Literal beast? Little creature with the leopards. Was it in Daniel? Was it a literal beast? No, no it was representative. Yeah, it was representative of, of world governments. Okay. Yep, I agree. So probably the same connotation here. Lots of conversation about who these beasts might be. But let, let's get clear from ahead of time. Nothing we've seen in Revelation so far makes me think this is a dude or some sort of literal beast, leopard thing, bear item. Okay? Nothing would give me that impression. Probably shouldn't think about that here. So it has to stand for something. Right question is, what, should it, what does it stand for? How does it act? Okay? Well, generally, the animals represent the government. Like the United States is legalizing the Germans are a hawk, the Russians are a bear. Um, yeah, it has. Uh, yeah, and, and that's, the, that's the symbolism. Dave talked about this when we went through the Daniel study, as he kind of talked through that. Um, of the different symbolisms coming out of Daniel 7. As a matter of fact, um, even if you haven't, li- even if you don't listen to all that, um, go back and, and check out the, the historical stuff that, that uh, Dave Herrick did in the Dropbox folder on, the, um, on Daniel. Because um, it starts to put some of these, he's really good at that. Like, I stink at this. I have to work hard for the symbolism. And, like, you could spit, like, just a bunch of symbols out at Dave Herrick and he can tell you what they are. Because um, he's just, some people are, their minds are oriented better that way. But, like, if you haven't listened to that, I'd recommend doing that because it starts to put some of this stuff in a little bit greater perspective. Or at least you have something to tie back to that, like, we're not doing anything intangible. We've dealt with this in Daniel with the same thing. These represented actual things, actual governments, okay? Um, all right, and they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Uh, you know what that kind of 
You know the phrase that kind of reminded me of, again, from a parody perspective, is a who can stand. It kind of has a bit of a who can stand vibe to it. Um, but it's the opposite. Like, who can, who can be like the beast? Who can fight against the beast? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Same amount of time. Same amount of time. Time times half time. Okay, 1,260 days, same time. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Now, that makes sense, right? Because who did we, what did we see in the last chapter with the two witnesses? But people making war against them. Okay, yep. Um, so, again, that's why I would orient kind of all in the same amount of time. That, that time times half time, all that stuff is basically describing different angles of a specific amount of time. Um, and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe, people, language, nation, for, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Where's that from? What's that? Yeah, it's in the letters, right? We haven't seen that yet again, but it pops up right here. Okay, he who has an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, right? That ended every letter in Revelation 2 and 3. Okay, and here it shows up back here. It's a warning that if this applies to you, you need to be careful. Okay? Um, if anyone, okay, watch as it continues. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. That's a colon. It's going to continue. This is what you need to keep in mind. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. That makes a lot of sense with what we've been talking about, right? Our defeat is our victory. Okay, now unless we think that oh maybe he's maybe he's that's just like hyperbole maybe he's saying kind of this lofty thing it follows up with here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. No, I meant what I said. <laughs> I meant what I said. If anyone's to be taken in captive to captivity he goes. If anyone's to be slain with the sword with the sword must he be slain. Well, it also calls back to the fact that when the saints cry out uh, for their uh, their vengeance against what's happened to them, God says, "No more of you will die." Yeah. Yeah. And I've put, uh, hold on, I, I don't remember why I did this, so let's look it up and see if I was rationally thinking. Let's look at Jeremiah 15. Well, in this area, it comes from, like Dan was saying, I'm saying in the sermon that whatever has to happen, it has to happen. There's no way of getting around it. Yeah. If this is, if this is how it was said at the beginning of time, then it, so shall it be. Yeah. We'll just miss the blessing if we don't want it. Yeah, and, and like th- this this section, um, and I don't want to. Sp- we won't spend a lot of time here because, frankly, there's a lot of theological things that would have to undergird to kind of talk through written before in the in the in the book of life. Um, but what I will say is, like God's, I think if we're trusting God's sovereignty, His purposes will be accomplished one way or the other. Okay, I think part of the question is, are you going to go willingly, or is He just going to use you, <laughs> however He has to do so? Um, I would say the prescription of revelations implies that you have a choice. It implies that, like, he, if, he, if a part of what Jesus is saying here is to say, uh, if you're going to, um, he who has ears to hear, like, if you didn't have the choice to hear, then I don't understand the admonition. Right. I don't understand the encouragement that Christ, like, the constant trajectory of Scripture is making is that, like, if you do this, like, even if, uh, remember we went through um, uh, John three sixteen and 18? Okay, there's, there's an if statement in there. It, God acts like you have the ability to react to these things. Um, I don't think that removes the ability for God to accomplish what he's going to accomplish. I think it's going to happen one way or the other. 
Um, and so you can either do it willingly or he'll, you do it unwilling, but it, it's going to happen. Um, but I think the trajectory of Scripture, um, at least for me, would say that uh, you, you have the option to take part in that. Well, plus this is a painting picture of both sides. Heaven and earth, right. both sides of the fence. Mm-hmm. You can you can be here and bear witness to it and get it get in line with it and get on board with it and let's go together and be a part of it. Yeah. Or because it's gonna happen. Yeah, yeah. That's what we can. Tr- this is what's gonna happen? How do you wanna How do you wanna roll with it? Right. Yeah. I agree. Uh, this was Jeremiah 15. Okay, I know I know why I did this because you have similar language here. It said, Then the Lord said to me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn toward this people. Send them out of my sight and let them go. And when they ask you, Where shall we go? You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, Those who are for pestilence to pestilence, and those who are for the sword to the sword, those who are for famine to famine, and those who are for captivity to captivity. I will point over them four kinds of destroyers, declares the Lord, the sword to kill, the dogs to tear, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. And I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth because of what Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, did in Jerusalem. Fierceness. Fierceness. Um, I think we might be... 13 minutes. Let's, let's see if we can get through the second beast, and then we'll, uh, and we'll go from there. Uh, then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. That's a weird conflux, is it not? Mm-hmm. Something that looks like a, like a lamb but speaks like a dragon? Parody. Okay, there's still a sense of parody here. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. So that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Uh, good. All right, let's, let's get this out of the way. So, um, uh, I don't, this, is, I don't, this is not a physical number. Okay? This is not, I don't think you're going to find it in barcodes somewhere. I don't think um, there's a lot of there's a lot of thoughts about this. I told you not to Google Revelation stuff. Double not Google six six six. You're going to get lost in the sea of crapola. Okay, don't be doing that stuff. Um, so uh, there's a lot of thoughts. Um, Ronald Wilson Reagan got six letters apiece. Yeah, that's likely. It was specifically tying to a president two thousand years from there. Again, we can't take the hands out of the first century person, right? It has to mean something to them. Um, there is uh, a lot of times people will fall. Um, I th- and I think this is the right answer. I just think they're coming to the wrong conclusion under something called gematria. So gematria is um, Hebrew, Hebrew letters all align with numbers. Okay, so they teach you the alphabet and the, the numbering system kind of at the same time. So like there's a numerical value with each letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And so a lot of times what they'll come up with um, on 666, there's actually um, there's some early variations where sometimes you see 666, sometimes you see 616. Um, and they happen early enough in some of the biblical manuscripts that we can't just ignore them because they'll happen consistently. And so um, they, they have not got, they've gone with this, but like uh, historically this is a viable number. We have to figure out where this might have come from to answer this question correctly because if, if it's a reasonable error, we should be able to figure out where the error came from. 
So anyway, um, if you assign, uh, and I don't do Hebrew, so I, I'll post a picture of this on Facebook for you guys just so you can see that I'm not making it up, but I, it wouldn't do me any good to try to explain the numerical values. But like a lot of what people will come up with is um, Caesar Nero or Caesar Neron. Okay, that maybe this is um, Caesar. Maybe this is uh, Nero, um, one of the emperors at the time, um, to represent the second beast. I, that doesn't make a lot of sense. For us, it wouldn't be because of the timing of Revelation. I would say that that happened 30 years prior to this point. Um, it also doesn't seem to encompass, um, even if you took Revelation as pre-70, um, this doesn't necessarily describe Nero very well. Um, he's not a universal character. He's still a point in time. Um, and so it, do, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Um, there, but there are variations that would try to get you close to um, either the 666 or the 616. Well, the Muslim Christians, because the Muslim and the Hebrew are very similar, they see something different too. Because if, um, when they're reading it in the, uh, the original language, it reads something different. Well, Greek is, them, Greek is the original language. Yeah. Well, they, and they see a different picture than here in America. What would you see? Um, or the English. So I think I'm kind of following you, but like the the the, the Greek translation, it's a transliteration into Hebrew, um, uh, regardless of their language. Like that, I don't know. I suppose it would depend how they brought it over, like how you translated it. Um, but like, I don't think it probably shouldn't change the underlying notion of what the value is. But in either case, so um, here's here's what I, if if you look at how these add up, though, um, there's something that works for both, and the answer is. Beast. The number of its name. Beast. It's nothing any more complicated than that. Using, using the same level of gematria that people have come up with like 50 million different translations for this. Um, it simply adds up to beast. Um, this distinction exists because there's a different tense of the word beast that shows up elsewhere in Revelation. And that would have added, uh, which is a slightly, it's a variant of that word. And that would add up to 616. Okay, so what do I think the mark of the beast is? I think I think it's the number of its name, beast. Well, God's number is seven, and that's perfect. This is uh, imperfection three times. I don't know that seven is God's number. Well, it's, it's perfection. Is God's number. I mean, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. I just don't know that that's like the scriptural basis seems to point to more completion. I'm not sure about perfection. I'm not sure about perfection. I just, uh, maybe, maybe no, there's a lot of people that, that believe that. I just don't know where that comes from. Okay. Otherwise, coupled with seven as an understanding of completion. So, like, that's a that's a pretty normal thing. I just don't like personally. I'm not sure where that, like, how we go from completion to perfection in all cases. Um, no, probably not. Probably not. Um, so, anyway, the reason I point all that out to you is this makes sense, right? Like, if, if we're talking about, um, we we said when he when he sealed the 144,000, what was the point? Yeah, that's right. It's a, so we said he, he, he points out the people on earth that are his people, those who belong to him. Okay, that's, that's how they're marked. Okay? Yeah, and, and it indicates who you belong to. So if you have the mark of the beast, okay, what does it indicate? You belong to the beast. It, it, it's an indication of who you belong to. Okay? And for our purposes, really, it's not God. You have an indication of who you belong to, God, not God. It's the same distinction we made in measuring the temple. God, not God. In, ins and outs. Okay? Um, that's the same distinction that we're making here um, when he's talking about the mark of the beast. So I don't expect, again, like I'll, um, 
uh, I would, uh, I, I, this creeps me out, but like if I was forced to get some sort of thing in my thing, so I, my arm so I could buy groceries, that's not a, mar- I'm not worried about it. Okay. It's not the mark of the beast. Um, when it talks about not being able to buy or sell, I think that that points to, if you look at the, se- the way the second beast is described, it sounds a lot like the Roman imperial cult. Okay. Basically uh, we, we talked about this way early, but it was about worshiping the, um, uh, the emperor as a God. Okay. So, and it makes sense now that you have, um, everything is, it's pointing back to the beast. Okay. All these things are, are and it's, it's what says, if you can't, um, if you don't agree to this, you can't buy or sell. Um, we said that if you wouldn't worship certain patron saints or, or patron gods of some of these trade guilds, you couldn't, you couldn't get a job. Okay. You couldn't be part of that because you otherwise wouldn't submit to their patron gods. So that makes a lot of sense to me um, because it makes sense to, it still fits in a first century Christian's hands, does it not? Okay. The the distinction that he's trying to make here, if he wanted to be more specific than this, he would have. Do you think God doesn't know Ronald Reagan? I feel like he could have come up with that. That's not the point. Okay. The distinction he's making here is who do you belong to? If the mark of the the seal of 140,000, 44,000 is, these are the people that belong to God. If you're the people that wear white, is an indication of these are the people that belong to God, then you also have an indication, a mark of who belongs to the beast and has the number of its names. You belong to the beast. You have the beast's name on you, just like everyone else is sealed with the name of the God, with the name of God. Does that make sense? Well, and I'm looking up calculate. It says calculate. And when I bring up the concordance and the, all of that, it says um, to give one's vote by casting a pebble into the urn or to decide by voting. Uh, I'm trying so to think of. So you're picking a side. You're. Yeah, yeah, that would make sense. You're, you're choosing. Yeah, you're, casting you've got, your you're casting your vote. Yeah. Right. You've got two urns and one pebble, and you've got Jesus over here, and you've got not Jesus over here, and you're going to take your pebble and cast your vote. You're going to align yourself. I think that's a. I think that's the overall trajectory of. Of the distinction that's being made. Although, I mean, I, I suppose that does, it, it would make just as much sense to be kind of, if you're moving the, like the Gematria numbers would also, would make sense in that thing. Like you're also having to do some sort of um, calculation there. Um, so, I, but, but otherwise, it certainly casts the right, I think it's the right thought. It's just saying, who do you belong to? Do you belong, like, are you worship, if you're worshiping the beast, you belong to the beast. If that's what you're going to worship, fine. But let's at least be clear that that's who you belong to and that you're marked that way. Um, so, so no, of all the kind of weird things that come out of the discussion of 666, I, I wouldn't expect this. I don't think it's a name. I don't think it's a person. I don't think you're going to see it in your barcodes. Like, it just, all that doesn't make any sense to a first century Christian. Being saying, if I say it's the number of its name and its name is beast and it's referred to as a beast, a generic beast, which is this description so far in chapter 13, yeah, all that makes perfect sense within the hands of a first century Christian. And it indicates who you belong to if that's who you're going to worship I don't know all that seems to make sense to me um, and I think it fits within our understanding of the trajectory of how John is talking is it happening today? what's that? isn't there a choice in a cast being vote being uh, put today yeah Christians in the Middle East who do you vote for? you going to take the beast or are you going to right. die? Yo, yeah that's the ultimate what they're asking now so these things aren't just first century correct replicating to us now yeah I agree Agreed, uh, and, and so which makes sense for the trajectory of, of Revelation, where it has to, it does make sense for them, but it can also make sense for us, as opposed to something that we own, like it's Ronald Reagan. It's probably not Ronald Reagan. And, and looking at some of this, if it does go back to Harold, it does specifically point to a specific 
it's late, so I use specifically and specific all in one sentence, sorry. <laughs> but if it does point directly to, instead of spelling it out, mm -hmm. what is the concept behind Revelation being written in code or so that if this letter fell into Roman hands, somebody reading it wouldn't understand that John is, is here actually spelling it out. Um, I've heard that. Like, there are some thoughts that are around that. I, I think there's enough in Revelation that you wouldn't avoid that one way or the other. Um, right, like, I think if it fell into Roman hands or whatever, like, when you talk about, we, we, we talked about earlier when the Euphrates is drying up, like, that's a, I think they're going to recognize that um, as a threat against the emperor. You still have thrones of which no emperor is on, um, of which God is on the throne. They, they would, certainly would have understood the references to Jesus. So, like, even if, even if you'd coded 666 well, there's enough here to get you killed, um, even veiled. So, yeah, yeah, so, like, I've heard, I've heard talk about that. Um, I don't know... I think there's enough that it, would, it wouldn't do any good. So if John was attempting that, he may not have done a great job because I think there's still enough to kind of take him out. So anyway, that makes the most sense. There's a lot more technical articles on that um, that I can give you if you're interested in kind of the numbers and stuff behind that. But like that makes the most sense in the trajectory. If he's not, it, John has always been specific where he wanted to be specific. So if he's not been specific, I think it makes sense to, to do it in the way that, uh, that that makes sense right there. Uh, all right, let's stop at chapter 13. We'll move into uh, chapter 14. And we'll be back into uh, seven angels, seven plagues, and seven bowls, getting through 14, 15, 16 for next week. And then probably two weeks after that, <laughs> we'll tie her up. All right, you guys hung out long. Thank you. Have a good night. All right. Two months. <laughs>